Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the CBS all-access series, The Stand, (laughs) episode three, Blank Pages. Let's start the show. Nick Andros, a deaf mute, wakes up in a hospital after being beaten in a bar and having his eye injured. During a dream, he is offered his voice, hearing, and eye to be fixed by Randall Flagg. Nick refuses and dreams of Mother Abigail, who summons him to Colorado. He wakes up to find that many are dead, but not his assailant who is dying from the flu. He also meets a developmentally disabled man, Tom Cullen, who has also dreamed of Mother Abigail. In Boulder, Nick is the voice of Mother Abigail. On the road, Stu meets Harold and Franny, but Harold wants nothing to do with him. Traveling some more, Stu encounters Glenn Bateman and his dog, Kojak. Stu and Glenn find out that they are also having dreams of Mother Abigail. After Rita's suicide, Larry travels alone until he meets Nadine and Joe. In Colorado, a crucified man threatens the committee with a message from Flag. Nadine communicates with Flag, who has a plan to destroy the committee. Woo! Lots happened in this episode, Jay. We're going to need to talk about that. But before we do, let's get into some listener feedback. Absolutely. I can start off with an email from Liz from PA about episode two. And Liz agreed with us that Heather Graham is way too young to play Rita, but goes further to say that she feels the whole cast, with the possible exception of Harold, is cast too young. Liz also says the time twisting is really putting her off. She's read both versions of the book multiple times and watched a previous miniseries, and she's just annoyed by it. She can't imagine how it's going for those who've never read or seen it before. They must be very confused right about now. In summary, Liz says, the show is a bit of a disappointment to me, especially since I've been looking forward to it for so long. But you guys never are, so thanks. <laughs> thanks, Liz. We appreciate that. Yes, thank you. I will say, I wonder if the character seeming young is now due to the fact that I don't know how old Liz is, but like, Jay, you and I are getting older, and so everyone's starting to <laughs> see, feel young to us. But I, I joke, but like, I think we mentioned at the time that we were doing the book that King was sort of messing with the counterculture here, and a lot of the characters were supposed to be young, like in their early 20s, late 20s, like only Stu was sort of older, and then Glenn was obviously older than that. But I think the characters in general were supposed to be in their 20s and early 30s. Yeah. But I guess if you throw in Mother Abigail, the average age of all the characters (laughs) is probably 70. That is true. That is true. (laughs) Uh, But I get what Liz from PA is saying. I I think that the, uh, at least the appearance of the actors, seems to skew younger than what I had in my mind, mm. and certainly than what the 94 miniseries did. Yes, that's true. And to be fair, this plague is supposed to knock people out, you know, almost at random. Like, there, there's no rhyme or reason as to who would survive. So the, the group of survivors that the story focuses on can be from any age group. Yeah. So our characters should be on a wide spectrum of ages. And for TV reasons, we... W- I think people like to cast younger, attractive people because that's just, that's the TV expectation. Sure. Um, But I I think that it might have been nice to just not be ageist that that way and cast people that more closely resemble the age of the characters in the book. Yeah. 
we got another email from Sergio A. The subject of his email was closing song to episode two. Sergio thinks the song Brand New Key by Melanie might also be a nod to Heather Graham, since the same song plays in an important Graham scene in Boogie Nights. And I think you might be onto something there, Sergio. There's definitely the whole key thing with Flag and Lloyd, but getting the double dip with the nod to Heather Graham and, and one of her more memorable roles, that's a good catch there. Yeah. Did not make that connection myself. So we also had some feedback on Twitter, Jay, and one of the things we did was facilitate a conversation between two of our Twitter followers. Mm. And so uh, first off, a response to our tweet came from Ronald, who said, I've enjoyed how closely the show is staying to the source material while also keeping it interesting for constant readers. The only two things I didn't like were Franny trying to commit suicide and Hemingford home being in Colorado. Um, I totally agree on the Franny trying to commit suicide, Jay. You and I talked about that, how that is not a good change. In response to Ronald, Susie Q70 said that the bit about Hemingford home being in Colorado instead of Nebraska really threw her. And she immediately stopped watching and just stared at the screen. And she hasn't watched since that first episode. The show just lost her after that. Wow. So Ronald responded to Susie and said, well, I understand them not wanting to introduce another setting that they'd be in for an incredibly short amount of time. There's plenty to like about the show. Definitely got to keep watching. I will say I'm not totally aware of the geography of Nebraska and Colorado, but I don't think it's that big of a deal because I think Nebraska borders Colorado. And I didn't think it was that big of a deal to change the location. That again, there was no reason to change it at all in the first place if we're never going to go there. I think that's the key point. If we're never going to spend any time in Hemingford home, what difference does it make? It could be on the moon. But in terms of geography and things like that, the really important part of Hemingford Home is that it is on a corn farm, right? It, the corn is really key to this. And, and in all these dream sequences with all the characters crawling through or walking through the cornfields, the show acknowledges this much. So when I saw that they had made this change to put Hemingford Home in Colorado, I did some quick research to make sure that corn is actually a common crop in Colorado. It turns out it is. It's not the thing that it does the most of, but there's a lot of corn production in Colorado. So at that point, I'm like, I'll allow it. Yep. That's fine. I think a lot of it has to do with my Midwest, Northeast uh, interpretation of my view of Colorado, which is mountains, the mile high city. But when I flew into Denver, like you're over cornfields, cornfields, cornfields. And even when you're landing, like you're going over a lot of plains before you get mm -hmm. into Denver. But again, it seems a needless change. Yeah. You know, call it whatever you want. You're filming it in Vancouver anyways. Right. Where everybody knows they grow zero corn. Exactly. All right. Well, Jay, I think you and I both agree that getting listener feedback is something that we were hoping to do. So continue to send that in as you guys watch the episodes. We love hearing from you. Yes. Keep the feedback coming. Sean, we were just kind of talking about a fundamental change in moving Hemingford home to a different state. But there are some other fundamental changes that I think the show has made that could potentially change some of the underlying themes and meanings of the story itself. Mm. For example, Mother Abigail seems to have much more agency. She's being much more deliberate about what her influence is on these characters. In the book, I always thought of her as this almost mystical character that had this connection to God. She represented God's will, or at least the powers of good, as opposed to the powers of evil. But 
she communicated to the various characters through their dreams, then sort of became a, a kind of figurehead to the new society that they built in Boulder. But she didn't seem to actively move the pieces around the chessboard. Mm. Whereas here in the show, it feels like she kind of is. Yeah. Where she's, she's reaching out and telling people, do this, go there. Uh, and to the point where, like, for example, she seems to send Tom Cullen to Nick. And I know that this is at least in part, or, or very likely at least in part, just for expediency, just to simplify the storytelling, to bring those two characters together quicker and sooner. But it's so different that it feels important that it's different. And that's why I brought it up. Yep. Yeah, I can see that. I It was sort of a shock to me that Nick wakes up and Tom's right there in the hospital where Nick just woke yeah. up a little bit earlier, um, and and they're together now. Uh, I think that that is a good point. Abigail is also more direct about putting Nick as her voice. They have a a dream sequence scene together where where Nick is talking with Abigail, and Abigail says, "You're going to be my voice." And then later on, when they have that impromptu committee meeting in the hospital in Boulder, Abigail comes in and reminds everyone, hey, I made Nick my voice. Whatever he says is coming from me. So you have to listen to him, basically. And that does seem like another change as well. Yeah. Another change, and we've touched on this a little bit in previous episodes, is around flag. The flag of the book and the flag of the Dark Tower is more of an opportunist. He's, he's an agent of chaos. He seems to seize upon bad situations and make them worse. And he does so to serve his own agenda, whether it's to gain power or control or influence. But ultimately, he is not the instigator of a situation. He's the, the stirrer-upper of that situation. <laughs> and um, whereas in the show, we saw that he held the door open to let Campion escape yep. to spread the virus, the Das Boot moment. <laughs> and in this episode, he pulls a character who he has previously crucified off of his crucifixion and sends him to Boulder with a message. That, to me, is Flag being much more deliberate. He's not just aware of the other society and maybe sees it as a potential threat. It's like, no, I have to defeat and destroy them, and I'm going to take deliberate action yep. to do so. This feels like another fundamental change. Yeah, again, part of that I think is expediency as well, right? Making things happen more quickly. In the book, you'll remember that it's almost two-thirds of the way through before the characters start realizing we're in direct opposition to each other and we need to do something about that. There's mm -hmm. a lot of, of not getting that. And the writers here seem to be saying, though, we're going to put these two forces against each other from the get-go. That's part of it, I think, is expediency. But also, I think it highlights more the fact that this is a good versus evil story, whereas in the book, if you argue that Flag is an agent of chaos or just an opportunist, or even somebody who wasn't around previously, who just sort of showed up when the plague showed up, mm -hmm. it's harder to make that high stakes good versus evil piece when it seems like they're encouraging that view as well. Yeah. Although I will say that the uh, possession scene with Flag's messenger in the hospital bed, when Flag speaks through him and, and we hear Skarsgård's voice, and the, the black eyes and the crows flying into the, the window and, and smashing themselves. And I, I think it worked as far as like a scary moment that shows to some degree the extent of his power and influence that he can 
broadcast himself this way through this person. And that it also seems to come at a cost. True, the crucified guy was very injured from the crucifixion, right? right? And he was maybe very close to death already, but being this radio antenna for Flag kind of just finished him off. Yeah, I would be interested to know what the other characters think they saw there, because we saw the wounds expand and get worse. We saw the crows. And I wonder if Glenn and Larry and Stu saw that, like what, how much of that did they see and experience? Because that's a change too, even up to the end until Mother Abigail really says to them in the book, you're going to go to Vegas and and make a stand against Flag." Some Mm -hmm. of them have doubts about like, what are we doing? Does Flag have any power? What, what does he do? And if they saw all this here in episode three, there can be no doubt that Flag is a true adversary. Yeah. For sure. And now I'm starting to wonder what what did everybody see? Why did the why did a, a whole bunch of crows uh smash into the window and and bloody it up and even one I think pierced the glass yeah. and then a, a split second later the glass was fine and there were no crows. Right. Whose hallucination was that? If it was a hallucination and if it wasn't, is that just a weird edit? Yeah. Did the show mean for that to be a bunch of broken glass and dead crows? And then, like, just missed it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, And one other fundamental change is that we see here that, I guess you could also put this under the category of Flag being more deliberate. He reaches out to and connects to Nadine much earlier in Nadine's life in the show than in the book. To the point where book Nadine seems to have this idea that she needs to save herself sexually for some reason even as a young girl, but it's not clear that it is Flag or has anything to do with Flag specifically. But the adaptation for the show is that it is specifically Flag. He has reached out to her and he has made that connection when Nadine is a teenager, it seems. Agreed. So that means that for at least 10 years, maybe a little bit more, Flag has been in her life. She's been wearing that pendant and making life choices and doing things in accordance with Flag's wishes. Right. And that makes her a really different character. I would agree. Yes. And might even change her relationship with Larry and others, right? And Harold, because mm-hmm. she knows that a lot sooner. All right. Well, that scene is done in a flashback, which we continue in this episode. And I know you don't want to call them even flashbacks anymore, right, Jay? Right. I just want to call it jumping around because we're not flashing back. We're just changing where we are in the story. And it's just a jumble. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like a broken record now, but this is just not working for me. I don't think that it's adding anything to the character story, which is what's most important. I think perhaps the writers and the showrunners and the directors think that they are adding to the story that people want to see. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's just not working in, in a way that makes sense because it's not illuminating the character story in any significant way that adds to my understanding of these characters or adds to the themes of the story. It's just there to be there, I think. And it's something that I can see as somebody who's very familiar with the book and see like, oh, we're hitting all these points and I know where this fits in in the bigger story, but I don't know why. And, and it's frustrating. I agree with you. This structure is not working for me. Maybe this will be the last time we talk about it on our podcast, because I I suspect that the structure is going to remain through the very last episode of the miniseries. But I do want to just bring it up at least this one last time and talk about why it's not working. And for one thing, there are far too many of these jump arounds 
I think you can only really afford to do one or two in an episode, in an hour of TV. And they're also inconsistent. Some of them would have like a, a title card that would say where and when this moment happened. And then others don't. So the inconsistency makes it harder for me as the viewer to really understand what's going on. They're also not anchored anywhere. I think a flashback needs to be a sidestep from the present. And so if our story takes place in the present, and that is Boulder, then we need that anchor of Boulder. We need to spend what feels like the majority of the episode in Boulder, and then spend short periods of time sidestepping to the flashbacks, and always come back to Boulder as that anchor point. We should never go from flashback to another flashback to another flashback before coming back to Boulder. But the show does that, and it did it way more this episode than it has in the previous two. So if this is just going to keep going up and up and up, this is what I said I wanted to talk about after you finished your recap. Your recap was just a series of moments. It, yep. it didn't have a through line. It didn't have a smooth running story. And that's not a, it's not a criticism of your recap. It's a criticism of the show. Right. This isn't a good way to tell a story or at least they're overusing it so much that they have failed in their attempts to make it a good way to tell a story. Flashbacks can work really well. I've seen it happen well in Lost, like we talked about. It works in Orange is a New Black, but it doesn't work here. I'll tell you where it works. It works in the book, The Stand. Yeah. Here's an example, Jay. When we first meet Larry in The Stand, he has come to New York as somebody who's at the top of the charts in music. Right. He's driving his brand new Datsun. Yes. And he sees a dead rat, right? Like, or mm -hmm. live rats eating a dead cat or something. And we flash back to find out why is he in New York? What's his purpose for being there? And it turns out that even though he's successful and was becoming a huge success in LA, that success had, had made him a, not a nice guy in his own mm -hmm. words. He ain't no nice guy. He had turned to drugs. He was hanging around with the wrong people. And finally, someone took him to the side and said, you got to clean up and get straight. And what he decided to do was to go home, home to where he, he knows his mom will knock some sense into him, even though he has a not great relationship with his mom, and home to a New York City that's very different from the New York City he left. Right. But all that illuminates Larry. In that flashback, we see who he was. He was a session musician who hit it big. But then, to your point, we're anchored in a moment in the present in New York and why he's there. And he's there because New York is important to him in some way. It's where his home is. It's where his mom is. And it's the place where he thinks he can get cleaned up. And that's the anchor. And that's a good use of a flashback. We get this backstory that illuminates the character in the current moment. And we're not getting that in these flashbacks. What we're getting is moments, as you said. Yeah. We're getting a moment where, hey, here's where Stu met Franny and Harold. But I don't even remember how that fit into the bigger story. Were we with Stu in Boulder when we flashed back to Stu with Harold and Franny? I don't think so. I don't think we were with any of those characters. We were just sort of like, hey, here's Harold sucking gas out of a car and now Stu's mm -hmm. met them and then we moved on to Stu meeting Glenn and so it was just sort of out of place and you're right I don't want to keep going on about this because I think we know what the problem is and it's obviously not something that's going to be solved in the next few episodes but it exists and just to add one more reason why this structure isn't successful is that this structure also removes opportunities for drama and reveals for example we know who lives or, or we know who survives to get to Boulder because we've already seen these characters alive in Boulder. So if a character in a flashback is in some kind of peril, there's no drama there. 
There's no suspense. We know that they're going to live long enough to get to Boulder later because we've already seen the future of the story. And the reveals are part of that as well, like that Nadine is a sleeper agent. Mm -hmm. That's something that we should find out later in the story. We should see Nadine interacting with other characters, doing other things, making decisions for herself, maybe even struggling with something that we can't quite put our finger on. And then later on reveal that she's been influenced by and, and working for Flag all along. And whoa, that new information changes our perception of the story. Yep. But again, with the, this, this structure, the life of that story is sucked out because we're finding this thing out about Nadine so early. Yep. That's all. Yeah, it's, it's a bad decision. One good decision, though, uh, the final fundamental change I wanted to bring up was that in the TV adaptation, Glenn is a decent painter. <laughs> That's true. Like, he's a decent painter for a reason. Again, I yeah. think this is part of the way of the writers being efficient, but it's a well-used way of doing it. Yes. You know, one of the things we loved about the book is Stu and Glenn have these pages and pages long conversations about mm-hmm. the nature of society and, and how, how great that is. And we get a little bit of that in this, but rather than them talking three pages about the different dreams they're having, it's just so much better when Stu can just look at it and they're like, hey, you dreamt to her? So did I. Wait, you painted this lady? I met her yesterday. Like, it's just so cool. And those pictures really make a good job of doing that. Yeah. The fact that the painting is is a visual medium. So a painting of Mother Abigail is what Glenn saw and it matches what Stu saw. So in just a glance, they both know that they saw the exact same person in their dream. Yep. And then when it comes to the, the painting of Franny, it's a moment that Glenn has never experienced in real life, but this is a real person in the world who Stu has actually met. Again, we're doubling down on these types of connections and it works so well. So I'm so glad that Glenn is a much better painter in the TV show (laughs) than he was in the book. Absolutely. And while we're just talking about them, I just wanted to add that the scene with Stu and Glenn when they're just getting to know each other and, and, and Glenn is just feeding Stu, I thought that was such a great scene. It was fun. They got to bond over food. Glenn was simultaneously complaining about life in general, but also introducing new foods and flavors to Stu. And you're like, here's some caviar on a potato chip, you know, all of it. It was just charming and fun. And you could see how well these two actors worked together, the chemistry that they had, and these two characters bonding and learning who the other person was all about and liking the other person. Yep. For someone who complains about life so much, Glenn really knows the finer things in life. Uh He's got good music. He's got drugs. He's got good food. He's just like, hey, this isn't so bad the end of the world, is it? If you're living in the -hmm. the right way. He even has (laughs) one of the last dogs on the planet. Yeah. Good old Kojak. Could be a lot worse. Yep. All right. So what else is working? Um, I really enjoyed the scene when Joe discovers the guitar. Um, much like how the, the scene with Glenn and Stu really worked for me, this, this scene with Joe and Larry really worked. The idea that Joe is a, a young boy who has never held a guitar in his life and somehow through intuition and, I don't know, maybe even a touch of magic, he can completely grasp how the instrument works and how to make the music that he hears. But for that to be true, he needs to be able to actually play the instrument correctly. And part of that intuition that he has allows him to do so. But the nice little touch of realism is that his still very small boy-sized hands and the fact that he hasn't developed any calluses yet is accounted for in that moment too. Even though this is a fantastical thing, 
it still feels like it's grounded in reality. And the 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 connection that Larry and Joe form with each other with and through this this instrument and this music is really special too. So I guess the pattern that I'm picking up here is that where the show works, it's when they take the time to show characters connect and connect in a way that is convincing to me. Yep. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of that in the show, but this is another example of where the show is really working for me. Yep. I think that that scene also marks the first time that we hear Baby Can You Dig Your Man. It is. Yeah. yeah. I wish we had gotten more of it, but we got a little bit of a taste of it right there at the beginning. I think we're going to get more. I hope we're going to get more. If you watch the end credits, you'll see that Baby Can You Dig Your Man is performed by Duran Jones, who is a singer that um, I've come to enjoy over the past year. I think his band's called uh, Attractions or something. They've got a couple albums that are really quite good. Is he one of the founding members of Duran Duran? <laughs> no, it's Duran with a D. Oh. Um, so hopefully we'll hear more, baby. Can you dig your man in future ones? But that was a nice scene. Yeah. Another uh, scene similar to that that I really liked was even more brief, but still good. The one with Larry and Stu after they were come back from shooting or maybe hunting. But basically it was Larry learning how to use a rifle properly from Stu. Mm. Again, it was two characters connecting over something, having a conversation about something that wasn't the super flu and just bonding. And it was a good moment. It gave me, the viewer, an opportunity to see two main characters find connections to each other and uh, maybe just grow closer to each other. Because that's that's the important, or that's a very important part of this overall story, is that eventually they, they do form a, a society and make decisions about how to protect and support that society. And if they are all strangers to each other and don't know anything about each other and don't care about each other, That'll never work. Yep. So we need, we need time to get there so that these characters can do those things for each other and for their, their larger group. Agreed. Um, another thing that I think continues to be good is the actor playing Harold is doing a good job. Um, I do still think that, that his arc in the first episode is probably amongst the strongest part of the show so far through three episodes. But even in the limited time we saw him in this episode, he's just making some interesting choices. He didn't have a lot to say in this episode. But a lot of the way he holds himself, um, because we see him in a flashback, and he is less confident. He's very wary of Stu, protective of of Franny, but also he hasn't worked on that fake smile sincerity yet. Yeah. yeah. So he's got that hunched over, mean. He's very sharp, angular, and uh, you know, short with everybody. Whereas when we see him in the present in Boulder. He has a lot more of that confidence and at least that ability to present himself as somebody different. And I think that that takes a lot of skill as an actor. And he's done a good job. I agree. He's definitely one of the, the standout actors of the show. All right, Jade, there's not too many, but I think I saw at least one Dark Tower Thinny. And that is when Nadine has her dream sequence with Flag. And the dream sequence sets place around a campfire, and it's obviously in the desert above Las Vegas. And it was very reminiscent for me of the Man in Black's palaver at the Golgotha mm. with Roland. I don't think either one of these people would be Roland in that case, but just sort of like having an important conversation 
around a campfire in the desert reminded me of that scene in The Gunslinger. I'll allow it. I mean, just the fact that you managed to work the words palaver and Golgotha into the same sentence is uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure King even managed to say both of those words <laughs> in one sentence in The Gunslinger. Um, this is a real stretch of a thinny, mostly because it connects to a movie based on a Stephen King book that is not in The Dark Tower. When the crucified man tells his story, there is a brief flash of him in Vegas with flag. And the carpet in that scene has the same unique pattern that the carpeting in the Overlook Hotel in Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And almost everything at some point or another seems these days seems to show this pattern, like the yep. Toy Story movies do it. Anyway, it was there. It could have just been any carpet, but <laughs> they deliberately made it that. And I figured I'd call it out because it's kind of just a general Stephen King thinny but not really a Dark Tower thinny. We'll give it to you. Okay. There was a long consideration there. <laughs> and the judges say, eh, all right. Eh. All right. Maybe we're just getting used to it, but there's not quite as many yucking it up moments. Blah. Yeah. I didn't find any. Yeah. I, I think you're cynical, Jay, and this doesn't affect you anymore, but I don't know. <laughs> Seeing... Seeing the wounds of a guy who was crucified, that's pretty gross, especially when he was pretty bad when he came out of the car, but then he looked like he was healed up when he was in the hospital, and then the wounds came back and he started bleeding and had black eyes. I don't know. That's pretty gross. Okay. I mean, uh, <laughs> that's your opinion. <laughs> it's like just your opinion, man. Um, well, how about, when, uh, how about when Nick gets beat up and then not only does he get beat up, which is gross enough and his face is split open and everything. But then he's in the hospital and there's all these people with tube necks. That's got to be pretty gross as well. Yeah, I guess I'm just used to that now, too. Seen one tube neck, you've seen them all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the camera didn't linger on any of those people like, like it did in episode one. So. Yeah, I guess so. So, Sean, I, I believe we got a couple new patrons recently. We did. We want to thank Paul M., who also happens to be my father, and Elizabeth H. for joining at the apprentice level. They not only support this show, but they get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. We just dropped an episode on the Firestarter movie this week, and you can hear that only by becoming a patron. So visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. One of our new patrons, Elizabeth H., also posted an iTunes review, so... Thank you, Elizabeth, for posting the review. It helps other people discover our show. And her review, which she titled Best of the Dark Tower Podcasts, which I guess that means we are the best. Yes. Yay us. Elizabeth says, I'm a longtime listener currently enjoying your coverage of The Stand on CBS All Access much more than I'm enjoying the actual show, to be honest. <laughs> I think your analysis has nailed it every time with this show. I don't always agree with you 100% like that with the books. That's more like 97%. But you never fail to entertain me and give me more to think about. Dark Tower and King in general fans should give this a try. It's by far the best of the Dark Tower podcasts. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. That is an amazingly kind review. So thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. Well, it's time for that best part of the show. It's fun stuff. All right. Fun stuff. Why don't you kick us off, Sean? All right. Jay, this might be the fact that I like dad rock, 
But when we're introduced to Glenn, we hear two musical cues in the background. And one is Steely Dan when he's getting high. And I dig that. And the other is uh, Dave Brubeck's famous Time's Up jazz album. So not only do you know that Glenn is a cool and educated man, but he also has good musical taste, just like myself. Yes. Just like you. So one of the things I wanted to talk about in the fun stuff section is a, a group of odd lines mm. that caught my attention. So for example, Harold, after helping to bury the recently deceased uh, crucified messenger from Flag, uh, they're acknowledging the fact that this is the first person who's died in Boulder since they all gathered in Boulder. Yep. And this is a person who did not die from Captain Tripps. And Harold just says, he'll be the first of many. And yeah, that's an ominous thing to say, and it, it sort of hints at some future things that Harold might do, but it doesn't make sense that he would say that out loud. Mm. Another line was when Nadine goes into Joe's room in the morning to take him off to school, and it's like his, it'll be his first day of school, and she, he's, Joe isn't visible. She finds him hiding under the bed, clutching the guitar, and he's just staring at her like a, a frightened animal. And she says to him, wake up, sleepyhead. <laughs> why, why would you say wake up, sleepyhead, to some kid who is obviously clearly awake? Right. Was this a weird writing room thing that um, it's like a cute thing to say to a kid, but once you actually act it out, it seems off? Right. Yeah, that was just odd. And another one is when Abigail talks about the blank pages and how you know, the world is a blank page now, and then the the book on her table flips over over and into blank pages and it just seemed to not go anywhere. It was like on the nose, but not really important. And, right. but it was the title of the episode and yeah, a better show would have had that blank pages theme run through all the stories, but it, they didn't do a very good job of that. And I was thinking that the only book that mother Abigail would have would be a Bible. And would the Bible have blank pages in it? I don't know. It all seemed a little weird to me. I would hope it's not the only book she has. The woman's lived over a century, and I'm sure she's read other things. <laughs> All right. It was the latest Danielle Steele novel. <laughs> and it says, this page intentionally left blank. <laughs> and the final thing I, that caught my ear was Glenn responds to Stu saying, we got to get the world up and running. And Glenn says, up and running? I want down and standing still. And it was a cool line. I liked it. It was pretty crafty and, and witty response. But Glenn is the character who sort of wants to rebuild society. He's the director of how it should function and be structured because he's a sociology professor. Yep. Instead, he seems to be the character who wants to keep society from rebuilding itself. And that seems weird. And also, if he hadn't had that attitude, he could have also fed into that theme of blank pages. Like, you're right. Just like That's Abigail true. said, the world's a blank page. We need to get together and rebuild it. And that would have been a perfect line for Glenn to echo somehow. Right. Instead, he says the opposite. Yeah. Anyway, only fun because I get to nitpick at these weird lines. <laughs> uh, in that scene with Glenn and Stu, they are eating potato chips with caviar, which Stu has never tried before. And then once he tastes it, he realizes it's a delicacy. Mm -hmm. And it's Utz potato chips. And I'm not sure if all of our fellow listeners are familiar with Utz, but Utz is a Pennsylvania-based brand potato chips, and we sell them all around where I live. So I was happy to see Utz on the uh, on the table. It was even shown in the credits at the end. Yeah. I don't know if that's a 
intentional product placement or what? Well, you know, Glenn also makes a joke about how the caviar is the best Ohio has to offer, right. which made me wonder, did they relocate Glenn from Vermont to Ohio? I wonder. Because he made that passing reference about the caviar and he's eating Utz potato chips. There's just enough there. And if Stu's making his way west from, I don't know, I, I guess. Well, he was in New Hampshire, right? Hmm. Yes. If he's making his way generally west from New Hampshire, I guess he would pass through Ohio rather than Vermont. If he's in fact going to Colorado at this point, which we don't know, it's also unusual because Harold and Franny are supposedly he heading to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. But if they were going from Maine to Atlanta, you would think they would go Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. Yeah, where, where the right? heck would their paths have ever crossed? Yeah. If that's the case. Let's not think about it. But anyway, yeah, I, I thought the Uts was cool. I used to live in Ohio for a while and uh, I missed the Uts. <laughs> um, so th here's me going off on a tear again about how people travel. <laughs> When we meet Larry in the flashback, when Joe tries to stab him, Larry is apparently carrying nothing on his person except a guitar. And the guitar is not even in a case. Nope. You just got it at the ready, man. What the hell is going on here? He's already traversed sewers and crossed bridges and dealt with marauders and machine gun Wall Street bros and all this nonsense. And he's witnessed other people like Rita kill themselves and just not be able to cope. All of that experience, he still doesn't have like a backpack full of stuff like Stu does. He doesn't have a gun or some way to defend himself. He just has a freaking guitar. I mean, he's not El Mariachi, right? <laughs> or is he? Oh, <laughs> you just blew my mind. Yeah, well, and the thing is, is he had all that stuff because when we last saw him and Rita, he had a tent, he had a giant bag full of drugs, he had equipment, and Rita went out of the tent to kill herself. It's not like in the book where she dies in the tent and he just sort of leaves it behind. So mm -hmm. why not just pack up that tent and go? The only explanation I can come up with is that that scene, the cut is right to when Larry spins around to face Joe as Joe like tries to drive the knife into his chest. Maybe Larry had a backpack over one shoulder and that spinning around, it <laughs> fell. And then the rest of that scene, Joe is off in the background and there's like a bag next to Joe. And maybe that was Larry's pack. There maybe. you go. But, but just come on. I mean, I know it looks all nice and romantic. You know, the, the loner guy with the guitar <laughs> over his shoulder and wandering down the road. Uh, it just irks me. Yeah. And he still looked the rock star part, didn't he? Like he yeah, still had... like he just stepped off stage. Yeah. Unlike Tom and Franny, uh, when we see Franny, she's wearing a Mount Rushmore t-shirt, which I was like, <laughs> really? Like you'd think she'd have like a Algonquit or some sort of Cape Cod one and not a Mount Rushmore. Is that really what you want to wear across the country? But whatever, Franny. However, Tom Cullen dressed to the nines with the Dolly Parton shirt. You got to love that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Tom was rocking the Dolly shirt. But I don't think Franny being from Maine would ever wear a Cape Cod shirt. No. No. Uh, what would they wear then? I don't know. Acadia National Forest shirt. A Mount Cadillac shirt. There you go. Right. That works. All right. Well, usually on this show, when we're talking about 
comedic musical acts we're talking about Weird Al, but I want to talk about another one today, and that is when Harold is having a moment with Teddy Wiesiak, who is the, I don't know, is he, is he the caretaker of the Boulder Free Zone? He's in charge of like cleaning up the school. He's in charge of getting all the dead bodies out. Like He just seems to be a man about town and not mm. the inefficient drunk that he is in the book. <laughs> but he has the hots for Nadine, for sure. Like You could tell he's flirting with her and trying to make his way. And when she finally leaves the room, and she must only be like 10 feet down the hall, he says, she may be the hottest woman on earth. I mean, left. <laughs> and it reminds me of the Flight of the Concord song, The Most Beautiful Girl in the Room, where they rhapsodize about this beautiful woman who must be the most beautiful woman in the room. And that if they saw her on the street, she'd be definitely in the top three good-looking women on the street. In the whole wide room. And when you're on the street, depending on the street, I bet you were definitely in the top three. If you want to bring Weird Al back into it, we could reference his song, You're Sort of Everything I've Ever Wanted. Well, there you go. I like it. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we are going to end this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Stand. (laughs) Episode 4, The House of the Dead. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Do you call your cat Kitty all the time? Call her what? I heard you calling out to the cat and you just said Kitty. Yeah, she doesn't know her name, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. You're so beautiful. You could be a You're so beautiful. You could be a hostess in the 60s. You're so beautiful. You could be a part-time model. You probably still have to keep your normal job. Part-time model. Spending part of your time modeling and part of your time next to me.